The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Again, a big welcome for everyone. So uh, some of you are reading along as we're looking at the Buddhist teachings on emptiness, and some of you are following along in Guy Armstrong's book, Emptiness, A Practical Guide for Meditators. And I believe you can still get this at Moon Palace Books for a 20% discount if you tell them you're coming, uh, you're part of the Common Ground community. And if they don't have one in stock, they'll order one for you there. And so this chapter is uh, just a continuation of chapter 12, right? Chapter 13, it's the title is Cessation and Nibbana. And it's really a further, deeper looking at what do we mean by the happiness of non-grasping, the happiness of letting go. Because the interesting thing about the Buddhist teachings, and this is, for me at least, one of the reasons it's really trustworthy, it's just cultivating a stable presence, mindful awareness, in order to better, as a human being, follow the thread of happiness or pleasantness. But somewhere along the line, there is a real paradigm shift in a human mind, a human heart, about what that thread of happiness is. Because, you know, when we're not, when our attention is more superficial, then generally the thread I'm following is popcorn, you know, TV, whatever, you know, nice, fun interaction with another human being. So these sort of sense pleasures seem like for a more superficial mind, the only way to have some happiness. I get what I want. Now the trouble, I'm sure you've noticed, and if you haven't, sorry to have to break it to you, (laughs) these things that we pursue that are pleasant fall away, disappear pretty quick. Right? We've had nice bowls of popcorn and fun television programs and interesting, enjoyable interactions with other human beings. And we've had a lot of unpleasant things too. But both the pleasant and the unpleasant sense experiences have done what all sense experiences have always done. They arise, they're there for a short time, and then they pass away. And even if like you get something you wanted, like a nice home, but it doesn't it really isn't a cause for happiness except for those initial moments where you didn't have the nice place to live. And then you have the nice place to live. But how many days is it before it's not really an immediate cause for happiness anymore? The mind takes it for granted. And the mind is in need of some other interesting or pleasant sense experience in order to feel, to feed that beast of needing to be happy. So we just keep, you know, an ordinary human being just keeps pursuing this level of happiness experiencing some frustration, some understanding, hey, it's not really working, but doesn't know what else to do. So it just thinks of other things, other sense experiences to pursue in the hope that something will lead to a resonant, lasting happiness. right? Unless that person bumps into some useful spiritual teachings that puts the mind on a different thread, a different thread of happiness. And this is what I tried to point to during the guided meditation, we've been talking about this really since we started looking at this particular topic 
And it's just central to all of the teachings of the Buddha. So we've been talking about it for 25 years now, because that's how long Common Ground's been around, that there's this other thread of happiness. And, you know, in ordinary language, we say, well, it's the happiness of non-attachment, the happiness of letting go, the happiness that isn't based or isn't arising due to the particular conditions. Like, you can even check your heart, your mind right now. I could you know, ground, construct a sense of happiness because I like the clothes I'm wearing or that I feel relatively safe in what's happening around me right now or any number of other concrete experiences but that aren't dependable in the long run, right? You know, that I have money in the bank or I have this concept that there's this other person in my life and this person loves me and I love her and, you know, we... There are any number of thoughts and things my mind could point to, but all of that is uncertain ground. And ultimately, we'll all be taken away, right? Because we die and everything's taken away. All of those sense experiences are not de- dependable. I mean, that's just the way it is. And so the shift is realizing right now I could uncover through reflection, through reflection on the mind, the heart, right here, right now, I could uncover maybe just a little glimpse, the heart, the mind that's not dependent on my nice clothes, not dependent on having a home or a partner or health or any of the number of things that I generally ordinarily count on for my happiness. Right? So that's one way to open the door to begin to explore and taste, I mean, literally taste, is this happiness dependable, the happiness of non-attachment, not being dependent, right? Because we know the stress of the mind that's dependent on something, because even if we're not consciously aware of it, unconsciously we know it's not dependable. So there's always a kind of uncertainty, anxiety in the heart. This existential anxiety is so commonplace, we don't, it doesn't occur to us that it can be dropped. So the happiness of non-attachment is that the absence of that existential uneasiness, anxiety, fear, whatever you want to call it, tightness, um, often repeat this in the introduction class, this quote. I looked it up once, so I guess it's real. But way back in, uh, I don't know, early 50s, I forget when Albert Einstein passed away, but before he died, but he was an older person at the time, our journalist asked him, sort of reflecting on his work and, and sort of the world of physics generally, what some question like, what is the most important unanswered question about the universe? You know, it's sort of a question a journalist might ask, have asked Albert Einstein. And his answer was interesting. He said the, the only important question is, is the universe a safe place? Right? And that's really interesting, you know, and, and especially from the point of view of scientists who are, unpacking the lawful but very impersonal nature 
of the universe. You know, and then from a personal point of view, is that universe safe? Well, I think it's, I mean, I don't know if you thought about this, but I think the answer is no. From a, <laughs> from a personal point of view, the universe isn't safe. I mean, when you think about the tsunamis or people born into oppressive situations because they're poor, because their gender is this way, or because their race is that way, or they live in this place, and then they're subject to war, they're subject to oppression or their abuse of one kind or another. No. I mean, the way the sort of impersonal unfolding of galactic and microscopic, you know, atomic dynamics, that's, there's nothing fair about that. There's nothing just about how things play out. You know, like that the tsunami hit those people and not these other, or the earthquake happened here, or the tornado happened over there, or these people get oppressed in society and these people are privileged. It's not about fairness. The nature isn't fair. Nature is just a dynamic play of many, almost an infinite number of causes and conditions, right? Just this dynamic, these natural forces playing themselves out. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about it. It just means when we look at things, this is the world we inhabit. And this is happening internally too, in terms of our health, in terms of our own mind's conditioning by culture, through genetics, you know, that we have, you know, the conditioning of mammals, we have the conditioning of all beasts, right? That sort of fear-based, survival-based mentality, it's not that far under the surface in our own mind, which is why our human world and societies look the way they do, where power is still, you know, like holding on to power, getting power, is still a very useful way to look and understand what's happening around us in our personal relationships and sort of wider movements in society. And it breaks our heart, you know, when we see these forces. Now, of course, there are altruistic forces because they're also wired in to get along, to take turns, to be part of groups, right? So that's what I meant. There are these webs of conditioning. And the interesting question is, as we open to the impersonal world, do we, from a personal point of view, set ourselves apart, fighting it, denying it? Or do we relax? And in that relaxation, in that intimate presence with the world, with nature, do we find more skillful ways to participate? Because it's not like we don't participate. It's just that there are many, many natural forces. Our own participation is just one of those many natural and impersonal forces. But we get to participate, even on the level of how the mind is understanding this. Like pretending it's personal when it's impersonal has certain implications for how things unfold. Understanding what is impersonal as impersonal 
has other implications for how things unfold for us and, and those around us, really. So this is this chapter 13 is really a more subtle look at abiding in emptiness. This is a, an actual meditation, not just when you're sitting in a formal meditation posture, but even throughout the day, right? The Buddha is inviting us to abide in emptiness, to abide in a mind, in a heart, that understands the impersonal nature, this great web of impersonal forces playing themselves out, to abide in that without fear, without distraction or denial. And the interesting thing, because of the absence of this neurotic projection, like pretending that it's personal when it's impersonal, the absence of all that neurotic activity allows that space, you could say the space of my participation in the moment, to be filled with kindness and compassion and appreciation of what's beautiful and equanimity, a sort of impartiality, understanding that, well, this is how it is right now. So all of these beautiful expressions of emptiness depend on the emptiness of that neurotic activity, the absence of imagining something is here that's not really here. So when I have pain, whether it's emotional pain or I've stubbed my toe or I'm cold, I do what needs to be done, but I don't waste my psychic energy constructing a story of how that unpleasantness is personal. I just participate in the great web of causes and conditions and do what I can do. And if there's nothing to do, well, then there's nothing to do. But I don't waste energy. I don't create unnecessarily unnecessary contraction building a story that actually isn't grounded in the way it is. But it isn't so easy for us to cultivate this more direct, more immediate and, you know, truthful way of being in the world. It's like a lot of times, I don't know if you've tried to go swimming in Lake Superior, but even on those warm days, you know, you got to put your toe in and eventually you can stand up to your ankles and maybe in your thighs. And then I notice I spend a lot of time there where the water's a little bit below the groin, you know, <laughs> where we hold a lot of heat, you know, you know, but at some point it's like, this is really unpleasant, this sort of middle ground, you know, so I either take the plunge for a few seconds and it's just so disappointing to weasel out, you know, to kind of sort of a bad name for weasels, but <laughs> sorry, weasels. But to sort of back out. And so sometimes there's just a sense of pride, like let's just go for it because I know it feels good. And this is a little bit where we're at with practice too. You know, it's like it's so exhausting to be sitting trying to make something happen, trying to feel good, you know. Because even if you can bring some content up in your mind, you know, it's a little bit like a, a Hollywood production studio, we can construct all kinds of interesting fantasies, memories, whatever, hopeful visions of the future, but it's exhausting. 
they have to keep producing content. You can imagine the people at Netflix. It's like, especially now that, uh, what's it called when people watch a lot? Uh, binging. You know, it's like, I could just, I had this vision. There was some news report about this business model of, of Netflix of, you know, just like having to create more and more content and people consuming it faster and faster. And you could just imagine all those creative people like, and the, this uh, news article was saying that, yeah, they used to have high standards, but now <laughs> there's no room for high standards. They just need more content for people to binge. The, the other people out there, not us. <laughs> and then there's just, you know, a great conspiracy. Just let me continue this riff. Because I notice, even in my sort of respectable news sites, according to my opinion, that I read, you know, there are now more and more articles I see, you know, best shows to stream, you know, or best programs to binge. I mean, it's almost like, like, what's the deal here? You know, that we're all somehow, and we do this unknowingly with our friends. You know what I just watched? I mean, a good friend of mine, and it's, the thing is, I've read an article about this program. I'm not going to mention it because you're going to want to watch it too. <laughs> I haven't. Someday I will. You know, and I have like all these justifications. Yeah, it would be, this would be good to watch. Good information, you know. But it never ends. And it, and it's all part of this basic pursuit that if I get certain conditions, I'll be happy. But it's like sand through the fingers. It never lasts. How many times have we thought about lunch already? And it's not that it won't be a pleasant experience, but it will be an ephemeral, like even in the best scenario for lunch, it's going to be an ephemeral experience. And a lot of us, it will be unpleasant at the end. Right? Well, we will have eaten too much or eaten the wrong kinds of foods that don't really sit well with us. And then we'll have to bear with that. So what it's in uh, Joko Beck, this wonderful Zen teacher, um, she taught um, in the San Diego area for a long time, died in her 90s, really well-respected teacher. And she has a couple of wonderful books, Everyday Zen. What's the other one? Ordinary I forget, but you could look her up. Charlotte Joko Beck is her name. Joko is her spiritual name. And uh, she has this really simple phrase in terms of that, like that awakening where we see the mind pursuing, thinking that sense experience is going to make us happy in a meaningful way. She calls it the promise that's never kept. And so we want to let that sink in. That we call insight into dukkha. Dukkha is the word for the unsatisfactoriness, the limitedness, the imperfect way life is. The, and that, although it's really unpleasant to awaken to dukkha, it's liberating. Because it's without awakening to the unsatisfying nature of sense experience, we'll keep pursuing it and burning ourselves because or getting burnt by that pursuit. So it's liberating to realize, oh, I don't have to do that. Some of you know our dear friend and uh, one of our important teachers here at the center, Kamala Masters. She teaches in the summer for the TCVC, the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective Retreat. 
often gives talks here at the center when she's in town. But she talked about this dog out at IMS, a place a lot of us have done many months, even years of practice cumulatively in Massachusetts, a really kind of a grandmother institution to common ground. And uh, she's one of the guiding teachers out there and has practiced a lot out there. And there's this beautiful three-and-a-half-mile loop through you know, kind of rolling New England forests and fields. And there's a particular house that had an old dog. The dog has since died. But the dog's habit was people would always, you know, there are 100 retreatants at this place almost every day of the year as retreats start and end and the teachers and the staff. And a lot of those people after lunch walk the loop, right? It's sort of a way to get some exercise when you're on retreat. And then the dog just feels like I have to follow people, right? And so it will start following you, and then someone will be coming the other way, and it will follow them and the other people. I mean, you can imagine if there are 100 people plus 30 staff people and teachers, there are a lot of people walking all afternoon back and forth, and the dog just neurotic. And Kamala, who's uh, just this, she's both really has this very soft, uh, powerful, motherly, grandmotherly energy, but she also has this really fierce, powerful energy. So one day she just looked at the dog, right, with the depth of compassion, and then this fierce voice said, stay, <laughs> right? Basically giving the permission, you know what, honey? You don't have to follow all these people. You can just stay, right? You can just stay in your front yard, and you can watch the people come and go. <laughs> and this is a little bit like our mind. It's like, because we have this production studio, I can imagine the future, I can imagine the past, I can imagine good and terrible things happening, and I can imagine having to react to all of that. But we don't have to react. We don't have to pick it up with attachment. I don't have to get identified with any of that. I can just let it all come and go. And this is another pointing to this happiness of non-attachment. And it's just part of this progressive refinement of happiness. This, We don't really know about this progressive refinement of happiness until we start recognizing this paradigm shift. We're usually, most human beings, most of the time, are so consumed with pursuing sense pleasures, sense happiness, that we're just oblivious to, let's just call it, spiritual happiness. But then when we have good luck and good teachings and appropriate conditions, we start to wake up and we realize, and this is what I talked about the last two weeks. If you haven't been here, you can listen to the last three talks that are up on our website about this refinement of happiness, which, which begins with just the happiness of integrity. right? Because I'm not neurotically dependent on sense experience, I'm willing to refrain from acting out in ways that harm other people, right? Because if I'm not, if I'm totally dependent on sense pleasures, I'm willing to cheat on my partner or I'm willing to break up another couple's relationship or I'm willing to take something that's not mine or I'm willing to talk to Mary, talk her ear off because I'm neurotically feeling hollow and I need her sort of undying presence to my blabbering because I don't want to sit with that yucky feeling. So that even something relatively subtle like that is taking something that wasn't given to me, you know, we're taking someone's time. 
So there's any number of ways we act out harming, right? Pretending that the injustices in our society are caused or happening out there and that somehow, even though really we're in the same soup, somehow we're not part of these cycles of suffering, of of oppression, whether it's racism or sexism or classism or there is very real suffering and it's harming. It's we participate in the harm when we're unwilling to feel what that feels like and unwilling to respond in little and big ways that are available to us to respond. And it's uh, stressful to imagine that it's out there, the causes of suffering, the reality of suffering, and that somehow, although we care, it's not our responsibility. Not getting messy, not being in the mess, is its own kind of suffering. It requires our heart to be cut off from life. Realizing we're right in the middle of the mess is enlivening. Right? It doesn't mean you have to give all your money away. It just means you have to feel what it feels like to be in the middle of the mess and let your heart respond from that place. I mean, I've really been working, especially these last five or ten years, of like, what does it feel like to have this kind of conditioning as a white male? You know, like, and really own it. It's it's a breath of fresh air. I don't like it. It's humiliating. I I wish it weren't the way that it is, but it is the way that it is. And so I'd rather be in alignment with the reality than have to live my life in denial of what that is. The kind of fear, the kind of arrogance, the kind of personality patterns that have just been woven into culture. It's not personal, but denying it is a taking something like, oh, I can't own it. Well, it's not my fault. I mean, just if it's not personal, why not be intimate with it? Relax with it. Learn how to be skillful with it, right? If it's not personal. In the same way that, you know, we deal with the weather, it's not personal. We don't like complain that we have to put a big coat on even though it's April 8th or whatever it is today, right? Because we know it's like the only sane thing to do is to relax and participate with the reality of weather. To hate the weather is like unnecessary tension. And it's the same with our conditioning. We have to connect with it. We have to uncover it. We have to look at it. And this is the happiness of abiding in emptiness. It's not some kind of lofty thing because it can seem that way where we're actually contemplating the idea of emptiness, the idea of non-attachment. Real non-attachment means being right in the middle of the mess and letting everything move, feeling everything, seeing everything, participating in a very real, authentic, sensitive way. Right? Because our personality, we're not trying to protect the personality. It's also nature. It's also impersonal. Nothing is to be saved. Nothing survives. Right? Isn't that true? I mean, don't we kind of know that intellectually anyway? So we have to sort of allow the personality to participate in the world it's living in and to be shaped in that cauldron. Right? 
The worst thing is to somehow believe the personality can't handle it and that we need a bubble for the personality. Because that strategy, again, is thinking, okay, here I am, part of nature, and then my wisest solution is to get into some bubble, to be disconnected from nature. Like being part of nature, the skillful strategy is to be disconnected from nature. See, it doesn't make sense when we say it out loud. Being nature, the body-mind is just nature, just a movement of many forces. It makes sense that they get to play with nature, get to be right in the middle of nature and be shaped and changed, transformed by nature, to feel, to see everything, to be connected to everything. This is how we come alive. Not getting into some idea of transcendence, some idea of lofty spiritual place where we love everybody but we're somehow untouched, not feeling the suffering and the joys and sorrows all around us. No, that's just some idea that the self clings to. It's always going to end up with a sense of betrayal, like we set ourselves up again, trying to be safe by disconnecting. So let's leave it here. So we have 10 minutes or so. It would be nice to hear from a few of you in the room, your own wisdom you've learned through your own adventures and willingness to open and open and feel and see what's happening in your heart, questions you have about the talk today. Yeah, so we'll begin with you over here. Hello. Uh, My name's Max. I had a question about the um, something I've heard about uh, as a meditation technique um, called the Buddha smile, and you see it on statues, and uh, I actually find it um, pretty helpful. And a friend of mine um, who kind of just started getting into meditation, I recommended it, and um, he actually said it was like his favorite thing and it was really helping him. So I just wondered if that had any connection in the tradition to uh, the happiness or the Absolutely. type of happiness you talked about. But but these things are all on the level of pragmatic skillful means, little tools because they're really great when they're used with the right attitude and then they end up disappointing us when we use them with the wrong attitude. Like if I'm sitting and I notice that I'm in a funk and I remember what Max said on Sunday morning, oh yeah, I'll put on that serene smile. But if the intention behind it is to push away the grumpiness or the depressive feeling that I have, then it's not going to work. But if that technique of bringing in a very simple, it doesn't have to, like the joker, (laughs) but just kind of a, and it actually doesn't even need to show up externally on your face. It can be just an internal sense of like the heart itself has a simple, serene smile. You know, just like a a way of just subtly saying yes to the world that we're in. And if the intention is really about a willingness to respond to what is being felt and seen in a kind with kindness or with a basic goodness of the heart, then that then it'll probably be really effective. Because actually these techniques, their real usefulness is that as a technique, as a thing that we remember, it's like a seed 
that reminds the heart of so many, the complexity and the depth of the teaching. Like, honey, you don't need to be afraid. Right? So when we're really smiling, we're in those moments we're not afraid, when it's a real smile, right? So that's the key is that the technique to put a smile on your face re- represents a lot more than that just surface thing of smiling. Yeah, but it's very powerful and many teachers have used it as an invitation, like even in, in the middle of a guided meditation. So you can just experiment with it like Max suggests. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, and right behind you, Dave. I'm I'm David, and um, I often find myself, you know, in this position, um, having sort of half-formed ideas, and usually I just say, well, I'm not going to articulate this one, but I'm going to try this one. Um, because, so last night I saw a... a performance of Bach's Toccata and Fugue. And it was powerful and really overwhelming and just incredibly exciting and fun. And it makes me, uh, and I often find have this thought about artistic expression, whether it's music or poetry or anything, it, it moves us through sensory experience to a place that we weren't before. And so so emptiness, I think, has its place, mm-hmm. but I am trying to, you know, I'm trying to figure out the connection between these really human uh, responses to um, sensory input and uh, and the opposite, I guess, which is what I think perhaps your your talk was about. Yeah, it's a really important point, David, and. I, I think there's, it's like a um, not quite true that um, like one or the other. And I think that's what our ordinary mind does with the teachings. It's sort of like appreciating the beauty of sense experience or sort of being in a place that's empty. But emptiness isn't that the experience is empty of sense experience. It's empty of attachment to sense experience. So one of the things when we're lucky and we bump into really moving sense experience, like David's example of hearing beautiful music, but it could have been anything, seeing a bird, having a nice interaction with a human being, really contributing in a powerful way that felt good. So there's any number of ways to have a powerful transforming sense experience. The first thing we want to do is study what is actually happening. And it always feels initially a little um, self-conscious because we want to indulge in our nice sense experience. But now we're asking the mind to be interested so that it can generalize what's happening. Because when we're having a nice sense experience, a lot of pleasure And that pleasure arises because the mind is conditioned, in David's case, to like Bach, you know, and like that experience. Other people wouldn't have enjoyed that. But because your mind is conditioned to enjoy it, there was a lot of joy, and then the joy extinguished the part of the mind that wanted things to be other than the way they are, right? Because in those moments when you were really delighting in the experience, 
you didn't want things to be different than the way. So you had a lot of equanimity, a lot of non-craving. Craving disappears when we get what we want. So the mind tastes a little bit of the taste of liberation because liberation is defined by the absence of craving in the mind. But this experience of non-craving happened because you got what you wanted. And what it does is it reinforces the mind, what else do I want? If I get that, maybe I'll have more. But what spiritual practice teaches us, we don't need to get to that place of non-craving by trying to get what we want. We can, through understanding, a deepening of understanding, I can just start relating to all experience, whether it's really beautiful, actually what I want, or really terrible, what I don't want. But I can be relating with non-craving all along. How, how do you know it didn't happen as a result of connecting to a universal experience? Yeah, the universal experience is the mind free of craving. Yeah, that is the universal experience. That is the, in a sense, the ultimate universal, because craving is what separates us out it's the mental it's the identification with craving that separates us from the whole let's call it good nice to see everyone take care this talk like all programs at common ground is offered freely in the spirit of generosity to learn more about common ground and its programs or if you would like to donate please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.